everyone. You're watching We Heart Therapy, the special series EFT Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Annabelle Bugatti, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified EFT supervisor and therapist here in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm super excited to welcome to our show today. We have Dr. Catherine DeBruin. She is one of our beloved EFT trainers in San Diego, and she also helps with the EFT community in South Africa. She does amazing work. And we have a special guest today with us. Also joining us is Dr. Carmen Morrison. She is director of Reclaiming Life. Can I get that right? And she's also a licensed psychologist and she practices both here in the United States as well as internationally. And she does some fabulous work, which we're gonna talk more about. But today we're gonna talk about shame and honor cultures. And this is something that Cam, that Catherine and Carmen both know a lot about. And so I'm going to have Catherine, why don't you go ahead and start us off and tell me a little bit more about you and Carmen and, and how you ladies sort of got into this. Thank you so much for having us on the show. It's mm -hmm. an honor to be here. And I got to know Carmen a few years ago and we've been working hand in hand since. I have a nonprofit in the US that helps therapists go into developing countries um, to give back and to work in those communities. And Carmen has the organization on the ground. Um, and so we've sent multiple teams into uh, Mexico City and um, Ecuador of therapists who are, are going um, to help out and to learn from her. And so in the process of working together, I've gotten to know the tremendous expertise that Carmen brings to the field and particularly in this area of honor shame culture. So the two of us got together and we've created a, a two hour online training that really describes what this is. And maybe just shortly, um, behavior is managed in different ways in different cultures. And so coming from South Africa, I feel like I have a clash of culture because the older generation is more an honor-shame culture and then my generation is growing up in more of a guilt culture. And just to give you an example of why I think this is important, I've always been interested in family dynamics, um, but at one point when I was about 21, I realized, oh boy, families really do things in very different ways. So I, I was sitting in my, um, my boyfriend's car who eventually became my husband and he had a younger sister who was 16 and the whole family was driving. I was a guest in their car. I just met his family and I had the idea of inviting his little sister to come and spend the night with me in my residence at university and I thought wouldn't that be a lovely way to like invite her in and show warmth and be hospitable which was important in my family and so I said to her Deirdre do you want to come spend the night with me you can come and, and sleep on the floor in my residence and see what college life is like and the whole car got quiet and I just knew that I'd done something awfully um, wrong. And so I said, what, what? And they turned to me and they said, you don't ask that question to a 16 year old. In our family, my dad decides and you need to direct that question to my dad. So immediately I realized, okay, we were going to be from sort of cross-cultural families. And then um, about a year later, as we were preparing to get married, I had a massive fight with my mom around the wedding planning. And in our fight, I kept saying to her, mom, it's my wedding. It's my wedding. Why are you interfering with my wedding? And she said, Catherine, that's because it's not your wedding. It's our wedding. It's this whole family's wedding. There were people that were there where you were born. There are people who have helped raise you. And I will be inviting all of those people to your wedding because it's a communal wedding. 
So, <laughs> um, I feel like um, it, when, I'm, when I'm training in EFT, I run into this a lot, that we sort of assume that people are from one culture. And so there's an array of um, blocks that we run into. There's different ways that we really should be asking assessment questions, building alliance with folks, and then just doing reflections in a cultural, um, in a cultural context that would allow them to feel honored and understood in terms of the culture they are. So the person that I think really knows this best because she's working with it all the time on the ground is Carmen. Carmen, thank you so much. So if you can tell us a little bit more about your background and about, um, you know, how you sort of got into this, what interested you. And I'd love to have the two of you maybe describe the differences between a shame on our culture and like a guilt culture, if, if you could. Sure. Thanks, Annabelle. And uh, thanks for having us. This is a really fun time to be able to talk about something that's really near and dear to my heart and uh, my passions, as I know it is for Catherine as well. So I uh, grew up cross-culturally my entire life. My parents uh, were missionaries. I grew up in Ecuador uh, and, and grew up with this experience of being suspended between cultures in a way. Um, that I, I have a culture that's not really wedded to any particular way of doing things. So I've always loved uh, international people and people like Catherine who have lived in different cultures. There's uh, almost like a its own language that you can speak and, and connect around really quickly. So that's how I grew up. And because of that, and when I decided to study psychology um, and I was going through graduate school, I had such a sense of what I was receiving, which is a wonderful education and that I just value so much, but such a sense that it was all kind of gearing me to resourced people and resourced communities. And I can remember having discussions like when they would raise tuition and I said, well, what about those of us who are wanting to do, to give this away, like to, wanting to do this in places where this isn't a, an available resource. Uh, and there were sort of just like crickets when I would ask that question. Uh, really not a lot of thinking for us as professional mental health people of ways of giving that away. I had a lot of seminars on how to set up a private practice and how to bill and how to work with third-party payers and a lot of that sort of thing put in place for me but not how you do this in other contexts and in a way that that gives it away uh, and also kind of really found it interesting that the multicultural impacts, which now are sort of required for all of us, even in continuing education in most places, um, were, were more just on kind of being aware that there are cultural differences as opposed to really how to, in practice, how do we navigate those cultural divides. So that's where the, the passion began for me. Um, and so in the last six years, I've, uh, along with my husband, have been working uh, in the nonprofit that we have with Reclaim Life to develop cutting edge programs that can be uh, lay led uh, and sort of self-replicating to work specifically in urban poor, urban slum communities in the developing world. So uh, finding those ways to to take what I've received educationally and with experience, but give that away to those uh, unresourced communities many times. 
sounds like you do really, really important work. And both you and Catherine have such a diverse experience around culture. And you're right, you know, in our, in our educational background, you know, they start teaching in counseling programs that multicultural counseling is the fourth force is what they call it. But, you know, unless you're working with, you know, a demographic regularly that is different than your own. A lot of us only get drips and drabs of different cultures and, and a lot of therapists struggle with the practical application of multicultural counseling. And, but, you know, in EFT, it absolutely does show up, you know, and I love how, you know, both of you talked about, and, and Catherine too, your experience is just so important you know, around sometimes we as a therapist may say something in session and we don't realize like, <gasps> like <laughs> that doesn't fit with their culture, you know, and sort of assuming that we might know one culture or the other. So Carmen, you, you go into these other countries, you go into these other cultures, you have a really wide variety of cultural experience that um, is so phenomenal. And many of us don't have as much experience with such a variety of culture. And I think when a lot of us look at American culture, um, we tend to think that we lack culture, that we're, you know, so when, you know, Catherine said that, um, you know, in America, we can kind of be a guilt culture, which in my studies in anthropology, you know, is, is definitely the same reflection. I think a lot of people would be a little surprised by that. So could you both maybe give us an understanding of the difference between what a guilt-driven culture versus a shame-driven culture would be? Sure. Um, so it's not just guilt-driven. I think it's really important to sort of wed the, the, uh, the contrasting terms. So there's the honor-shame and then the guilt innocence uh, and it really has to do and it is they are anthropological terms so this is borrowing from that field to help us with ours uh, they really are getting at the motivations that people have in terms of what holds cohesion what maintains cohesion in a group whether it's a family group or a broader community uh, so in the the United States and I do have to qualify this by saying we have so much cultural yeah. variations even in the United States um, yeah. in Pennsylvania where I work there's a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch influence which is much more honor shame in some ways than other parts of, of the country so just to, to qualify that but in general the American culture is built on the rule of law they, I mean if we just think of some of the phrases that we use the rule of law a guilty or innocent until proven guilty that's so our legal system is very much based on right wrong and what identifies us as acceptable has to do with whether we do the right things and follow, uh, follow the rules. Um, one of the easiest ways to sort of identify that is that uh, our highways and our roads, even in most cities, even though there's a lot of traffic, it, it follows very orderly patterns, uh, as opposed to driving someplace like in Mexico, where the rule is whatever you can get away with. So the road is very chaotic. Um, defensive driving is the norm. Um, 
people who visit and drive there usually are clinging on for dear, dear life. And, and yet it doesn't feel dangerous to those who are in those, those contexts. So guilt innocence is based on sort of a right wrong rule of cohesion. What holds us together, what makes us acceptable to one another is doing the right thing. In honor shame context, the cohesion is built around terms like respect. Uh, so uh, in, in uh, families in that culture, for example, uh, family conflict will sound like um, you've, you just uh, have you've lost respect for me and you're, you're not treating me with that kind of respect that I deserve just because I'm your father or just because I'm your mother. So, so position and status and honoring of that become the thing that holds us together. So doing kind of as Catherine was talking about with her wedding, kind of doing your own wedding the way you want to do it, which in the U.S., I mean, you know, all of our bridal magazines and, you know, you're the princess for the day. It's your day. Make it all about you. Like those messages just don't fly in a more communal culture which is uh, we have to honor that's what her mother was saying we have to honor everybody who's been involved in your life and that's what holds us together that's where cohesion comes from so it's really the motivation for acceptance it's not that shame doesn't exist in the u.s obviously it does as eft therapists we, we encounter that and work with that all the time so the emotion of shame is universal but how that becomes part of the cultural structure is where that would vary right now, can I jump in with a few uh, applications maybe for EFT, Annabelle? So when I was teaching a Hold Me Tight in Malaysia with um, heterosexual couples, what we found is that when we were trying to engage conversation, um, everyone was very quiet and we just kept getting stuck where we wouldn't usually get stuck in a Western culture. And it took us a while to recognize that the, the women in the group didn't feel free to speak in front of the husbands. And so once we finally used attunement and recognized that there was a big block, we actually separated the hold me tight out and we did a men's group and a, and a women's group. And you should have seen the volume in the room. Suddenly everyone was speaking. Similarly, when I was training in Minnesota a few years ago, we did a big family therapy training and we would just have asked people to, you know, raise their hands and ask questions or turn to each other and chat about things. And the experiential exercises fell flat because people didn't feel free to speak out about their own family experiences in such a broad group environment without bringing shame to their culture. So we had to adapt it and have them rather turn and do little written exercises or something more private. Uh, I think it happens in our therapy offices all the time. I worked with a Hispanic family where there'd been some molestation in the family and I just went right into the topic with them and actually ended up losing the family. They felt just like I'd exposed things that they shouldn't be talking about in that environment. And so that was a, a cultural misalignment again. So I want to, I want to come, come back to that because that's really, really huge. But I want to just um, quickly touch on something, Carmen, that you said when we were talking about the difference, you know, what really stood out to me is that, you know, yes, in America, we do experience the emotion of shame, but you don't often hear, um, you know, general Americans, right? I, I just kind of use that as an umbrella because we know that there are subcultures, you know, that come from a different culture who might identify as, you know, Dutch American or, or whatever. But just generic Americans, I guess you could say, wouldn't often describe, you know, their situation as 
fear of bringing shame on their family, whereas other cultures would talk about that fear of bringing shame. You know, that's so different. And in I definitely think in American cultures, and you see this come up a lot in my sessions, is that perception is very important, the way things appear. Um, if, if you're appearing good or, or as a good citizen, you know, versus um, that's that, that rule of law, you know, that comes into our culture. And, you know, coming back to what you said, Catherine, is that when we get couples into our room who are in a culture that are different than ours, or they have cultural values that we may not know or understand, when we address certain issues that can, can become a conflict. And, you know, I love that example that you used of, you know, there was a, a really big thing that happened in the family, the molestation and going out and drawing that out so directly, which we tend to do, we want to confront the elephant in the room and put it all on the table and be direct, but that can leave some clients feeling very exposed. And, and I have had a few clients where that was the case. Um, and it was so difficult to get them to speak about things. Even though horrific things happened to them, they were worried about the shame that would be brought upon their family. And so you're thinking, gosh, how can I possibly work with this person to heal this trauma when they're so afraid it's going to be such a conflict with their culture to talk about it? So how can we as the therapist, A, go about understanding that cultural difference um, and not making assumptions before we go head on into something so um, precious, so, so sacred, so tender, but also how can we, you know, accommodate that cultural value, but still help the wound heal? Mm. That's a great question. I don't, um, it's not even so much, I, I guess I might use a slightly different word. It's not so much for me as accommodating the culture. I'm going to put it in EFT terms because I think what EFT trains us to do, if we can think about it culturally, really sets us up to do, to do good work, even cross-culturally, even when we don't know the culture. And it does have to do with that attunement. So Catherine spoke about being in a room doing a hold me tight and just that sense that something's not working. <laughs> and I think we have that if we've worked with um, people of, of different cultural backgrounds in our offices, we know that sense that, man, usually I do this and it just sort of connects and rolls and something's not working. And then by, by attuning to that, we can explore that. I think that would be sort of at the most basic level. Um, what I think happens to us when we're kind of assuming everybody's in that same cultural frame for us is that we attune to, and we're all prone to this, right? We attune to our assumptions about things rather than the experience of the people that are in front of us. And we don't mean to do that. But it, just, it, it happens because we're all people from cultures. And so uh, having the awareness of that this, just even asking the question, I wonder if this is a cultural difference. 
So I just started working with a group in Rwanda, for example, and I do not know that culture. And I, some things started happening that I have never experienced before. And I'm, I find myself and I hear myself asking the question a lot of not of the group, but of my contact person, because that's an honor shame context. I wouldn't dishonor the person who set this up by going to the group and asking for their feedback. But I come to him many times just going, I am so sorry. There's, I feel like something, I'm missing something from your culture that's, that's clear to everybody else, but I, I'm not under, can you translate for me? Can you help me with that? So just using our attunement skills, which we're good at as EFT therapists, and just connecting that, marrying that with the awareness that that disconnect we might be feeling may not be so much emotional or uh, you know, dis dysfunction in traditional terms, um, but maybe more of a cultural difference and we're not able to tune into it because we don't know what's happening in the room with us. Right, I love that idea. So sort of tuning in when we notice this disconnect and asking, you know, I feel like I'm missing something. Is, is there, you know, I, I feel like there's maybe a cultural piece that everyone else sort of knows about, but I'm not quite aware of it. Can you help me understand what's happening right there? And then I think we can use some assessment questions. Uh, I love mm -hmm. what Carmen said about just not assuming that we're all wanting the same thing. So I find myself backing up a little bit and even on the phone with families, just asking who do you, who else is important in your life? Who speaks into your life? Who helps you guys make decisions together? And who do you think needs to come and be a part of this? Who would feel left out? So some assessment questions like that. I think when definitely when couples come into the room, um, one of my basic assessment questions is, is do the two of you want to be in a primary attachment relationship? Is that what you're coming to me for? Because I know that in many cultures, um, couples don't have the primary attachment. Sometimes um, different cultures will have that with sons and mothers or with women and uh, females with their moms and sisters and men and people they work with. So it's just knowing that we all have different loyalties and figuring out where those are. So I think so slowing down in the beginning and really working on the alliance building and getting to know people and asking questions like, what does it cost you to be in therapy? What's it like to be here? Is this something you guys have done? How is this looked upon by your family? I'm just thinking broader outside of who. Yeah, these are sort of mind boggling questions. You know, when you said, do you want to be in a primary attachment relationship? <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> Oh, well, of course, you know, it makes me realize our own assumptions that that's, that must be why they're here, right? Because we know about attachment and they have a, a love relationship, they're married, so that must be what they want, you know? And so we sort of automatically infuse that, that assumption that that must be what they want. But yet I would imagine, you know, if they are coming to therapy, that there must be some conflict between whatever kind of relationship they're seeking and and perhaps you know like if if they are married and there's a cultural piece that says no there's a other stronger um primary relationship that's you know our cultural way um you know and the relationship this this is just 
like really boggling my mind that, whoa, <laughs> that could actually be a real thing. And what's interesting though is, is I actually, so I did my dissertation on competing attachments and I talked a little bit about the cultural piece. And they found that even in certain Asian cultures where there is the mother-son is considered a primary attachment relationship even after a marriage that some of the wives still experience this displacement like you know they struggle to find their place in in the family Mm -hmm. in the family right because like the mother-in-law is still such a primary figure and it can be experienced as a competing attachment so how would you can we just kind of unpack that a little bit more? If, if, if you asked a couple, you want a primary attachment relationship, is there a culture in which they might say no? Oh, I'm, I, many cultures, I mean, many um, couples that I've worked with. So I often work with Indian couples in South Africa where sons and moms are, the, the mom is the closest one to them. So that's going to be their loyalty. And yet they are married to the wife. And so I think it's important just to get that clear that that's where the loyalty lies. And then definitely um, working with Japanese families or Korean families. I always, EFT is about working on, um, you know, primary attachments within a Mm -hmm. romantic bond. And so we just ethically have to make sure that people know what they're signing up for. And this is what we can do well, but are we working with the correct diet? That's right. It sounds like it would, it would get, seems like it could be kind of messy there, but what it sounds like in a way that you're saying is to help them have the kind of relationship they want to have while still honoring the other um, family attachments that are very important. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, working with an Iranian, Iranian Persian um, family in San Diego Uh, these loyalties were causing a lot of distress between this husband and wife. And so we actually brought in the whole family system. Like they needed to be a part of the therapy because when the couple was in distress, they also kept immediately running back to the family and involving the family in all of the fights. And so the family was already such an integral part. We thought let's just bring everyone into treatment and work with the whole system in the room because these two are a very a very close part of this bigger organism. Mm. How- that, that's particularly true. And uh, just if I could jump in there, in, in a more collectivist, communal, which mm-hmm. a lot of your honor shame cultures uh, do function that way, um, anything that is a, a problem in a relationship is aired amongst everybody. Everybody gets to have input into that in that extended family system. So part of that, even in the assessment, is being like like one of the questions that Catherine mentioned is who makes decisions? Who knows? Right? Just even those kinds of questions open that up to be able to know who you might need to include as those primary attachments so that we don't end up contributing to the competition of attachment and actually making that even worse. Mm, that's so important. And, and Carmen, for those of our viewers who may not be familiar with the difference between a collectivistic culture and an individualistic mm. culture, could you kind of share a, maybe a brief definition of the two? Yeah, that really um, speaks to how identity is formed. And, and so how you see yourself in an individualistic culture 
such as in the United States uh, and most Western cultures. Uh, it's my accomplishments. It's what I have done. It's, it's my career and my title and my work uh, and, and my reputation. So it's very, my identity is very much about what I have done on my own. And that is what's valued, what we've done on our, if somebody, I mean, we just think about the terms that we use that, oh, well, he just, he got that, he inherited that from his dad. So he didn't really, build that. That's really not his. So we kind of uh, dismiss things that were given to you or handed to you. It's what you've been able to do that forms your sense of self and identity. In a collectivistic culture, identity is formed by the, the place that I have in the whole of the community. So the role that I play, the status that I have, um, what I am known, who I am known as, not what I'm known for, that's individualistic, but who I am known as in the group. So it really speaks to the, the foundation of identity, which becomes really important in clinical work. Right. And the, the collectivistic cultures are much more community-oriented, mm -hmm. tribe-oriented, right. you know, the group identity, you know, again, with that, you know, I don't want to bring shame on my family versus, you know, this is all about me and what I do doesn't impact my family identity or what my family identity is doesn't impact me. Whereas collectivistic cultures, they're very much inextricably tied. So I'm, I'm giggling as you're talking, Annabelle, because I'm just imagining, imagine us just launching into an attachment interview about mm -hmm. childhood. So tell me about your parents and, you know, what did they do and, and just the conflict that that would bring up for folks from this kind of culture, right? Where you just cannot go back and think about anyone with dishonor in that way. Mm -hmm. It's so funny that you say that because it makes me think about a, not only would, can it be difficult for them maybe to open up and talk about their family of origin because they don't want to bring shame or sound like they're disgracing or ungrateful or disrespecting their family. But then on the flip side, you also have the American culture where they're like, I don't see what that has to do with anything. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then you have two people from different cultures married to each other. Yeah. Hello. Welcome to my world. <laughs> Trying to figure out that this is why understanding this has been so helpful and so um, Carmen introduced me to the culture test. I strongly encourage you guys to do it. It's theculturetest.com. It's free. It takes two minutes. But even just the questions will help you understand how people are motivated by such different systems. So I took the culture test a few weeks ago and my mind was blown. <laughs> and then um, I, I immediately sent it to my husband. I'm like, Etienne, I think this is a lot of what goes on between the two of us. You've got to do this test. Let's talk about it. And true as well, I had like, you know, 70 shame, 30 guilt, innocence. And he was flipped the other way. I'm like, okay, there it is. Oh, that's so interesting. Now, so Catherine, how, like, if you do have a culture that they are hesitant to talk about their family of origin because they don't want to, you know, be seen as causing disrespect or bringing shame, how would you get to know that part of their history if they can't talk about it? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't go there and absolutely collect that information and that it would be vital. I think it's just walking into that territory respectfully. And mm -hmm. I, this is one of the parts from my honor shame culture is just how you go into a situation and how 
for me, it's very important to go in lightly, lightly, respectfully, honoring, and first almost build up before you unpack. So yeah. just to give you an example, like my honor shame culture is very much the greeting is very important, how you greet someone. Um, you never go complete. We don't go directly towards a topic. You sort of first warm up and you understand the allegiances. And so um, like my dad and I, um, many years ago, I had to go and see an attorney about something in South Africa. And I took my dad with me because he's got a well-known name in the, in the community. So I went with him and, and we sat down and I'm in my American mind and I'm like, Let, we're paying by the minute, billable hours. Let's just get to the point. And my dad spent the first 10 minutes with this attorney and they were just getting to know each other, each other's backgrounds, how their family members knew each other. I'm like, what on earth is going on here? But they were setting the stage for the conversation. And so, again, I think if we really get to know these, these folks and we, we just show interest in who are you, how were you brought together, who was in your family growing up, and it's more from a lighter, curious place, then I think we're going to be less likely to run into the blocks and, and speak to that Carmen. But I think it's just that the curiosity and the respectfulness that. Yeah. And it, it does come to making sure that you put that, because what your dad was doing was putting honor in place first mm. so that the, the context of the entire conversation is, a, is about honoring this, this lawyer, who he is, what he has to offer, and then him also being able to honor your dad as a person in the community. So in a therapy context um, of being, uh, for example, if I work with a, um, a Hispanic family uh, that, that's maybe a little bit more patriarchal, uh, in some ways, and we can talk about that, but I'm going to address my questions and that initial uh, opening exploration to the father about those things. When it comes to uh, the parenting, I'm going to address those questions to the mother because that is her honor role. Um, and so it, it's, it's open to everybody, right? So if you're working with a couple or you're working with a family, but in terms of honoring their their position, their role in their, their system becomes really important as a way of opening that. And what I find is that when I have done that well, then I have the permission, then I have the invitation from them to go into intimate places without provoking shame. Yeah, that's so important. And I'm, I'm wondering, and you help me, would it be acceptable to be open about our lack of understanding their cultural norms and sort of explore it from that place. Like help me understand your culture. I'm I don't know. Help me understand the rules, you know, how things function so that I can get to know so that I can honor those places and you know, those, those boundaries for you. Would that be acceptable? Yes. I mean, it's actually, it depends on how it's done. If it's done, this gets to one of the concepts of honor shame cultures, which has to do with patronage. So if I am the professional, which automatically, and we talk about this in the um, webinar uh, that we did, if I come to you and position myself too low, then I'm sort of shaming myself and people are going to want to rescue me from that. Wow. So they're going to they're gonna want to lift me back up to that position. But if I come as uh, 
without reducing myself, like that, that I, I bring something here and uh, you've, kind of, you've asked me for help. So now I am sort of your sponsor. I am your patron. Uh, and, and there's this piece that I need help with, then I, what I'm doing, if I frame it correctly, I'm giving you an opportunity to bring what you have. So I'm bringing what I have. I'm not diminishing what I bring as the person of status in the room, but I'm allowing you then to bring what you have. Um, and the, the thing I would say in a therapy context with that is the importance of making those questions, especially about culture, much more specific to what's happening in the room, as opposed to a broad general, teach me about your culture kind mm -hmm. of a question, yeah. um, to make it very specific. So like right now, when I asked you that, you both looked at the ground, and I just am sort of feeling that maybe my question um, was not the appropriate question. Can you help me with that? Is there, was, is there a better way for me to say that than the way that I say, right? That's a real specific focused question. Which really requires a lot of attunement and looking for things that we may not normally be paying attention to or, or yeah. thinking of as a thing, or we may attribute to something else and not the culture piece. So just correct. Being, yeah very aware of that piece and, and having that curious. I really love how you said that. That's, mm -hmm. wow. <laughs> yeah, and especially I work in, in very uh, under-resourced communities, so where educational levels are really low. Um, and so even conceptually, a lot of times the things that I'm conceptually bringing are really kind of foreign. Like the language around that uh, is just, something very different than even in that culture somebody with more of an educational background might be able to connect with it without feeling shame so one of the things that happens in that patronage is if I ask something and they don't understand what I'm asking mm -hmm. they're not going to tell me that they're not mm -hmm. going to correct me because that would be dishonoring they just kind of go silent and so the attunement then might like if we're just thinking emotion and not culture at that point as EFT therapists, we might think, oh, you know, there's something going on with the emotion between them about that question and miss the fact that the emotion is one of we have no idea what you're talking about, Carmen, but we're never going to tell you that. So I think the, the attunement of that of being able to sense the difference and that's part of an experience thing, the difference between an emotional um, impact that's happening relationally or attachment wise in the room versus uh, uh, a cultural thing that just fell between us and is sitting on the floor and we need to look at that together. Wow that's so interesting and really opens up so much awareness and you know as you're saying I'm, I'm going back to what Catherine kind of said about the homey tight and so my question to the two of you is you know, if you, let's say you're working just with a couple, but it is um, maybe a mixed culture couple and, you know, it's it's a situation where the women don't feel um, in their culture, it's not their place to speak out to their husband or to talk about how they feel. How do you sort of, we know an attachment, this need to be able to talk about these things, but if the culture piece is constantly saying, no, you're going to bring shame or you're going to dishonor yourself by talking about this, how do you sort of rectify that? You know, because it feels like if you try to get them to talk about their piece, that would be dishonoring their cultures. But we know for secure attachment to happen in the couple's relationship, there has to be a path to talking about it. So 
how do, it kind of puts us into a bind, it feels like. Um, I, I might suggest maybe not as much as what it seems at, at first glance. Um, because if, if we're doing good EFT work, we're going to talk about their experience and we're going to help them have language for their experience in that moment. So helping a wife be able to say, um, sometimes I struggle, but I don't know how to say it because I don't want to dishonor you. So the reframe that we might give on something like that isn't that she doesn't want to talk about it or that, you know, it's too hard for her to, to connect with. It may be that she has an internal conflict between the need she has for him maybe to understand something, but also the desire to not dishonor him in any way. And that, that must be a really hard place to be. That's a hard conflict. What's that like for you? Can can you tell him what that's like, right? That's a different kind of a reframe that takes culture into account. Yeah, that, you know, it's, I know I have this on podcast too, but for those of you on video, I'm like, mind blow. This is, you know, it, it brings a whole new flavor to attachment reframes where you're really honoring that cultural yeah. piece through their eyes. That is mind-blowing. <laughs> wow, I kind of wish I had known this a lot earlier in my <laughs> yeah, career. Yeah, me too, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, let's, let's go a little bit step, another step deeper on this, back to something we talked about earlier. When, and Catherine talked about, you know, when there's something like a molestation that happens, and that would be even more difficult in some cultures to talk about. So how do you go about helping them heal, again, that attuning to that, um, I don't want to bring dishonor on my family, but something really bad happened to me. What would you say? Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that too, Catherine. Uh, my experience with that is of listening carefully for the euphemisms that they use and then using those euphemisms because we can talk about it just with, it, sometimes the euphemism is silence. Right. So I might say so that that we brought in with us today or that like if, if that's how they have identified it, that space, that gasp, that unmentionable space that, that we don't talk about, then that's what I'm going to use when I refer to it. So I, I really listen for uh, whatever kind of a euphemism. So if they're saying um, uh, that like I, I'm working with a family just now in, in Ecuador and, and they refer to this awful violation that happened to their teenage daughter as that thing that happened to our family. And so that's what I will talk about is the thing that happened to your family. I don't talk about violation. I don't talk about the victimization of that. I just talk about the, this awful thing that happened to your family um, and how each of you are experiencing that. So I, that would be sort of my thought, would, is really listening for their euphemism and honoring it is that that is their language for what has happened, not a blockage or not a, uh, like a fear of talking about it. It's just a different way of talking about it. I, and that makes, that makes a whole lot of sense. And I was just also reflecting on a client that I had, I believe who might have been from Vietnam and she could tell me about the, the awful thing that happened to her. And I was the only person, the first person that, that she had ever revealed this to. And it absolutely impacted her trust in her 
marital relationship, but yet she couldn't talk about it with her husband because again, I don't want to bring shame on my family. And so I'm thinking about clients like that where they can talk about it, but there's only certain contexts or certain people that they could talk about it, but not their love relationship. And so it's like the elephant in the room, you know, how do you draw that elephant in the room while again, still honoring, you know, that piece? I would, I, I would say, it, I'll just real briefly, and then I want to hear what Catherine says on this too, but I would say that even the concept of the elephant in the room is our cultural concept. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Catherine, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with that because I think we bring our expectations into what relationships need to look like. And e good EFT and experiential therapy is really meeting with people in where they are and really hearing deeply what they're wanting out of relationships. Cause there are just so many ways of doing relationships. Mm -hmm. So even if I have a, a couple that are in a very traditional gender role and, and there's a lot of the shame on it, shame and sort of suppression, that's their choice to live that way. And it's not for me to bring judgment or to try to change that. Cause that would actually be doing harm. So listening very carefully in our assessment about what is your relationship? How does it work? And where do you guys want me to bring help? Like with the Hispanic family around the, the, the molestation, I don't think that's even why they came in. I don't think that's the piece they wanted to talk about, but me without knowing this, that's absolutely what I jumped on. And so chased them out of therapy, made it unsafe for them because I was knocking against some things that they needed to have in place, right? So attachment is really about us adapting to our context so that we can stay as safe as possible and get our needs met. And we have to first understand what that attachment system is. And some attachments, um, attachments, um, there isn't one way of doing attachment that's healthy. Attachment is healthy when it fits the context that you're in. So that's so such an important distinction and it sounds like you know even if something like a molestation was impacting maybe the the way they were interacting trust or something you don't have to talk if they don't want to talk about that if that's not something that is important to them we don't have to talk about that and us as the you know the EFT therapist our, our little bloodhound nose picks up things like that. We want to talk about it, but not every culture, it's not important to every culture, every client, but we can still talk about maybe the trust or, or, you know, the dynamic, the, you know, it's so interesting. And, and I love how you really expanding this view of attachment that it's not so narrow and, and some of us can get caught in a narrow view of what we think attachment should look like. And that can be sort of a cultural assumption, you know, our own cultural lens mm -hmm. and understanding that there's multiple ways to do attachment. And we really need to tune into the culture and their context. Mm -hmm. You get a view of what attachment looks like through their eyes or their cultural lens and help them have successful attachment according to, to their, for their idea, their culture. Does that sound right? Yeah, except because I think I, I believe a full, my understanding of EFT is that a full course of EFT is to develop secure attachment. Mm -hmm. That's what we love to do. That's what we value. That's what we want for the people that are coming in. And EFT is for people, a full course of EFT is for people who want that as well. 
And that's a big part of what we're assessing when our couples come in. Is this something that you want? Am I taking you all the way through the nine steps? Or am I just doing stage one to help you with some other aspect of communication? That's super interesting. I really like that you're saying that because some of us, and, and I live in, and I know that's going to sound weird, but I live in a very strange culture in Las Vegas. And it's not culture in the same way that other cultures are defined, but it is a culture, subculture in American society. And people here are, it's very transient. And people here are not driven towards this long-term deep look. And so I think a lot of therapists have this expectation that because you're coming to me for therapy, for couples work, that I'm going to take you the whole way. And that's, you know, and I've, I've heard other therapists talk about this, but then you find them dropping off after stage one and stage one is like good enough for them. That's all they were looking mm -hmm, for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I love, kind of coming in with that idea of, you know, are we going to go the whole step or, you know, are you just looking for this little piece? Yeah, I might throw a, another shade on that. It's not in any way, not that, because I do think that's really important, sure. but just another shade on that, which is that the, the, from attachment research, the essence of secure attachment we know is, is not a cultural bound thing, but how that looks Right. might be. So when you're looking at a communal collectivistic culture, safety is going to be spread out among the attachments in that system. So I may not need the the deep kind of primary secure attachment with my spouse. I do need safety within the systemic whole. So, um, for example, when you talked about the, the Vietnamese woman, uh, worked with a woman years ago with the same kind of an issue. Her husband did not know that this had happened in her past. And in working that through with her and then doing some relationship work, what ended up happening was that she didn't need him to know because she was okay and she was able to talk to him about struggles that she had um, without having to name the origin of the struggle because she had done that elsewhere in her system. So that mm -hmm. security was given here. And then I just needed to know that it was safe enough for me to be in my, in my marriage relationship. So I would still see that as a very secure attachment. It just has a different face because it, it's just still accessible. I can talk to my husband about what I'm feeling, even though he doesn't know the origin. And he now knows how to respond to me because I matter enough to him to do that. And that, that's enough because that is what secure attachment is. So my, my shade on that would be is that sometimes they are going all the way. It just doesn't look the way we mm -hmm. think stage right. two needs to look. Mm -hmm. It's going to look different. That assessment question, which is what is, what is closeness and comfort and nurturing look like in your relationship to you? What do you guys need in place? Yeah. 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 I love, you know, again, how you said that, you know, it's really culturally defined the flavor of what it looks like, you know, it doesn't mean that we're not necessarily going all the way, but it, it will look different depending on the culture and, you know, the culture may define what the needs look like or what the needs are. And they can still secure attachment can look different among different cultures. Right. So really understanding again, expanding that piece, 
so that's not so narrow and we're not going in and saying this is our box where we're trying to fit you in of secure attachment and if you don't look like this then you don't have secure attachment it's not it's not necessarily like that you know there's a much broader sense of what secure attachment can look like so oh this is just a lot of beautiful wonderful just a lot of really helpful information to take in and super helpful i think it really gives therapists a much a much more practical sense of even their own horizons understanding how even when we believe we don't have biases how assumptions can still sort of be on that flavor where we're coming in assuming we know the way things are the way things should look and then we don't necessarily attune to the client and what their cultural definition is, how that may look. And so you, you're both really helping us expand that frame and teaching us how incredibly vital attunement is in these situations and, you know, the assessment questions. And I mean, this is just, this is excellent. This is a lot of helpful information. And you know, before I have you guys talk about your trainings and stuff, is there anything else that's, that you feel is super important that you want to make sure that therapists walk away from this little segment, this little piece? Is there anything else you feel like is important for them to know? I'm looking at Catherine and she's looking. <laughs> I'm looking at you. I think we've set up piece for today. <laughs> no, we just really appreciate you getting this out there. I loved how you said that, Annabelle, expanding the frame. And, and my desire is just the therapists out there would know that there are different cultures and let's just keep learning about each other. Yeah. And for me, it's just that I think EFT is such a gift and the attachment frame is so universal. I mean, I've never not seen that operative in any culture that I've, uh, that I've worked in. Uh, it's such a robust thing. And if we, it, with just the slightest little bit of shift in our conceptualization from that cultural perspective, lets it be robust with whomever that we encounter in our work. And so I, I just want to hold that and sort of honor, honor that, yeah. uh, that piece as well. Yes. And can I also say to Catherine, I'm actually thankful that you talked about how you, you know, un unknowingly or unwittingly chase people out of therapy. I think we don't have enough discussion of um, what it's like to lose clients. And there's this assumption that our mentors and our, and our supervisors and our trainers are perfect and they never lose clients. And so, you know, that's, where therapist shame may come up a lot is like, oh, you know, I, I didn't attune to that cultural piece and I did lose the client. And, you know, it's just so validating to know that we're not horrible therapists just because this <laughs> happens to us sometimes, you know. So thank you so much for just having the courage to talk about that and open that piece as well. Now, I really love... Um, you know, one of the biggest things that you really highlighted is the importance of having therapists continue to um, train in multicultural counseling. And, and the two of you have developed a special training around this. Can you talk more about that? So we have a two-hour training. It's available online. And um, I think you'll send the link out to folks or mm -hmm. make it available. It's at anysession.thinkific.com. 
Um, you can take that training and I definitely recommend the culture test as well. And then Carmen is available as a consultant around these cultural bits. And you can also always journey uh, with my nonprofit to go and visit at her nonprofit and hang out and we can all learn and try this on the ground together. Mm-hmm. And so can you both give us, um, tell us what your website is where people can find you if they'd like to contact you and do a consultation? Uh, I can be reached uh, my, the website for the nonprofit is reclaimlifenow.org. Uh, so I can be contacted through that at any time. And that would be probably the easiest way. And you can contact me at katherinedebrun.com. Thank Perfect. you. Perfect. So I'm going to put the links to both of your websites as well as the, the culture test and your guys' training website. Um, I'm going to put all of that in the information, the description for this on YouTube. So if you're on YouTube or if you're listening to the podcast, make sure that you head to YouTube to check out the links for this. And I really hope that you will look up Catherine and Carmen and take their training and invite them to your area to do a training on multicultural counseling. I think this would be such an incredible piece. Certainly we could expand it to more than two hours because mm-hmm. there is just so much wonderful information here that I think is so helpful. And I hope that therapists are inspired today to well and, and expand their frame and start to learn more um, about the attunement and, and how to continue to um, attuned to that cultural piece for their clients and, and EFT is the perfect way to do this. So mm-hmm. I thank you so much for just being on the show today and, and talking to all of us about this very important topic. So thank you to the two of you. Oh, thank you, Annabelle. And I just want to say thank you to our viewers. You know, you guys have um, just made the show blossom and bloom and successful so make sure that you guys look up both Catherine and Carmen make sure that you you find their information in the description for this video and while you're there make sure that you hit subscribe because more videos are on the way